Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of DPS. I am your host, as always, Adam Proctor. We are officially kicking off season three of the podcast. I think I said that last week for my patrons when I released a B-side with Bashkar Sankara on his great new book, The Socialist Manifesto. People should go back and listen to that episode if you haven't already. But now it's official. It's officially official. It's season three of DPS. We are expanding into video. Going to be releasing a weekly YouTube video or vlog. I'm not quite sure exactly what format that's going to take for now. We're going to try to keep it fun and light and accessible and short. <laughs> short, by the way. Aiming for uh, you know five to ten minute videos. Anything that can face down the right wing, alt right flat-out neo-Nazi hegemony that exists over there on YouTube, I think is worthwhile. And this is just my humble contribution to that project. I know the good folks over at Zero Books are fighting the good fight, and a number of other people on the left media ecosphere are also producing videos. But I'm throwing my hat into the ring, so everybody look out for that YouTube channel. It's going to be launching in just a few days. The link to the YouTube channel is in the show notes, so take some time to click over on that and smash that subscribe button on YouTube. I'd appreciate it. Likewise, deadpundits.com is going to be launching officially in just a few days' time as well. We're going to be consolidating all of our podcasts and videos over there just to kind of make it a one-stop shop for those things. I know they're kind of smattered all across the internet right now, kind of hard to navigate to. But this will be a good place to kind of uh, to find everything that we do here at DPS. Likewise, we're going to be publishing some articles as well. We're going to be republishing some articles. There are a lot of really good blog pieces that get released and maybe they take one trip around the social media sphere and then they're just retired prematurely. You know, I mean, the news cycle moves so fast. So this website is going to give me the opportunity to post and repost articles from across the Internet over the past several decades even that are relevant to our political moment in a way that I think people should maybe revisit them. So we're going to have that opportunity to do that as well on the website. Check it out, deadpunnets.com. That'll be up in just a few days. Uh, like and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Anyway, enough of this Season 3 expansion pitch. Joining us on the microphone today is one of my favorite all-time guests of DPS, going all the way back to Season 1. He joined us on the program to talk about his book, that was some years old even at that time. It's called Revolutionaries to Race Leaders. It's still a really important book. People should pick that up. You'll learn quite a lot about the post-war transformation of the kind of revolutionary black leadership to this kind of conciliatory race leadership that took us into the 1980s and 90s. But most specifically, we talked during that interview about an essay he had just written for Catalyst, which was called The Panthers Can't Save Us Now. And it was a critique of a certain flavor of racial representation and black power nostalgia. And we'll be talking about the thesis of that essay, which led us into the content of our A-side today, which is a debate that he had between a number of people, most specifically uh, legendary labor leftist Kim Moody and uh, an academic by the name of Maya White. 
and the debate centered around the nature of race and class. And we're going to dive into that straight away for our A-side today. Speaking of which, another change that you will notice going into season three is that we are reconfiguring the way that I present the A and the B sides. We're going to be releasing them together as one long episodes for the patrons once per week. They're going to get the A side immediately followed by the B side. So today's A side is going to feature a chat about this debate, about the nature of race and class. We're going to update you on the conversation we had over a year and a half ago. And then the B side, we're going to talk about the reparations movement. We're going to talk about the way that the New Deal has recently been revised by people on the left as an inevitably and essentially and tragically racist project that is not one that we should try to mimic in our contemporary moment. And, you know, for reasons that many listeners of the show will already be hip to at this point, that's a weak argument. The New Deal was comprised of many different ideologies, different types of political actors, all the way from Marxist labor revolutionaries to sort of more centrist Keynesians who were hell-bent on increasing the purchasing power of the middle class. So papering over a heterogeneous political movement as just incurably racist and therefore universal policies in our contemporary moment are doomed to fail uh, because of that. It's just it's, it's a really silly and simplistic argument, and we're going to break that down. Likewise, we're going to answer some patron questions. We got some really great patron questions for that B-side too. But if you're not a patron, you're going to miss out. So if you want to hear the entirety of today's episode, head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and smash that subscribe button. We're trying to do something innovative and exciting over here on the socialist left media ecosystem, and we can't do it without your support. I know everybody's asking for your money these days, and many of those projects are quite deserving. But if you listen to DPS on a weekly basis or even on a semi-monthly basis, consider supporting us in any way that you can, and you'll be getting some really great subscriber-only content each week as a handsome reward. On to our guest today. Joining me on the line is Cedric Johnson. It's been a while since I've had a chat with Cedric on air. But uh, he's a good friend of the show, and I lean on him in many ways when it comes to thinking through the complexities, not only of race and class, but of our democratic socialist present. Thanks so much for joining us on the program, Cedric. Hey, thanks for having me. So it's my understanding that since we last talked on air a year and a half ago, your Panthers essay was awarded the Daniel Singer Millennial Prize. Tell us about that. I did, and that was a huge honor, right? I mean, given the the work of of Singer and you know as a historian, and um, you know to just be affiliated with that was great. We ended up doing a panel at the Left Forum last year, where they they awarded me the the prize, and it's that panel that actually led to the symposium in new politics that included a follow up essay by me, uh, as well as reactions to the the Panthers essay by Jay Arena. Ture Reed and also uh, Maya Charlene White. So we were able to do that, you know, in uh, in new politics. Well, I'm going to pull a Stephen Colbert here for a moment, and I believe he used to do this back in the aughts, uh, uh-huh. back when he was still funny, uh, right. before he took the late night TV. <laughs> which I'm going to take credit for that prize. Uh, we did it, DPS. Right. We did it. Sure. <laughs> we did. It. Sure. We did it. No, but I, I mean, you, uh, at the time, I think I had you on. You were just sort of, you were kind of. Um, I would say your work was sort of peripheral to this budding socialist media sphere, you know, the Jacobins and the Catalysts, but you mm-hmm. since then recently exploded onto the scene. 
and you've produced in, in a very short order. I mean, your, your career is long, but in terms of being involved in this kind of Jacobin left, you haven't been on the scene for that long. And you've, you've really kicked off uh, a lot of really fruitful discussions. And we're going to talk about the latest one here. So give, give us some context here. If people haven't gone back and listened to that episode that I did with you a couple of years ago, Talk to me about what you were trying to accomplish in that catalyst piece uh, t- called, if I'm not mistaken, the Panthers can't save us now. Right. So, you know, that piece emerges from, you know, my, my direct experience with Black Lives Matter organizing, right? My contact with students, my participation in vigils and other actions, you know, in different places, uh, events here in Chicago. And I think what I was sensing, you know, back then was a bit of a, a contradiction between the aspiration, like what people are actually trying to do, which is to roll back the carceral state and the resurgence of certain notions of politics that were derived from black power and not really in a critical way, right? So there's a resurgence of all of this uh, embrace of the symbolism of, of black power, selective use of certain episodes from that historical period, certain figures. And I felt like that was a problem because it actually, as far as I could see, it cuts back against what needs to happen right now, which is building broad alliances that are capable of actually winning. And so it's more fully articulated in some of my more recent work. But I think at the time, it was just trying to come to terms with that contradiction, right? The the aspirations of Black Lives Matter as a phenomenon, which is to, to roll back the carceral state to end the killing of Black civilians by police. And then on the flip side, the deep problems of resurrecting notions of ethnic politics that were derived from the Black Power period. So that's where I was I was starting from, you know, in a sense. And it's not like that position has has uh, has disappeared, right? If anything, it's grown stronger since we did that initial interview. It feels like a lot of, of people have actually embraced that readily. And I think part of it has to do with the way that those ideas can circulate online. I mean, it's a lot easier to grasp, you know, uh, a short soundbite about how the Free Breakfast Program pioneered this uh, approach to dealing with poverty that would be taken up by the federal government, right? As a, as a soundbite that makes sense to people, it vindicates the politics of the 1960s. It also appeals to this notion of self-help that is really, uh, you know, virulent at this point in the, in the moment of neoliberalization. And so, it appeals to folks. The problem is it's based on a, it's predicated on a, on a falsehood, right? It's not like the free breakfast programs produced free lunches at the federal government. The federal government had already piloted free breakfast uh, back in 1966, right? They were already in the process of, of moving forward on that. And I think at that time we're serving somewhere in the neighborhood of 80,000 children. And so, you know, it's just the, the ways in which history, I'm sure you can appreciate this as a historian, the ways in which history just gets taken up and mangled, both to, to prove contemporary points, but also to satisfy people's need for vindication, their need for affirmation amidst all of the chaos and the problems that we face at this particular moment. So I think it has some genuine anchors, but I don't think it really helps us out to deal with history in that fashion. Right. So in a sense, you're on the cutting edge here. Um, you and a cadre of others, you've already mentioned some of them. Uh, you mentioned Toure Reed, of course, Adolph Reed Jr. is in this uh, group as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, several others who have really led the way in trying to capture the historical specificity of actually existing black life. Right. Uh, and, 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 you know, the, the TLDR, as the kids say these days, the too long didn't read 
is that uh, two things. One, the, the, the general takeaway from your Panthers essay is that race has never been enough to constitute a political constituency, mm-hmm. not even in the throes of the Jim Crow South. Right. And certainly not now by comparison in terms of the relative formal rights that have been extended and fought for and won since that era. And then the second one is it really comes out, I think, very, very well in your most recent essay, uh, the, mo- the kind of capstone to this debate, at least so far as we as we uh, find it today. Uh, that essay called is called What Black Life Actually Looks Like. And, mm-hmm. you know, the TLDR is in the title. You're trying to get at, you know, the reality of black life in our complex world. And as you bring up in that piece, I just want to foreground moving forward. There are 46 million people categorized as black in the United States, which is, I mean, I don't know how much more than, much more than Canada, uh, more than Australasia. There are three times more than Australasia. Is that correct? Yeah. You know, so just to contextualize that a little bit, I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I'm sure there are people like the ADOS folks who might contest the 46 million, right? Because they start to parse out Haitians and, you know, uh, foreign born to bring the numbers down. But I mean, the point is a simple point, right? Let's talk about black people with the same level of sophistication that we do with other populations of comparable size and complexity, right? I mean, I think that's a, it's a really simple charge, right? Um, and, and I see that reflected, like you said, in Preston Smith's work, Dean Robinson, you know, Toure Reed, Adolph, and all sorts of other folks, right? Um, but it's a, it's a tough thing for people to abide, right? So no matter how many times we write uh, about these things in forward-facing venues or in academic books, you know, it's just amazing that that no matter you know no matter how many times you say it, it's still difficult for people to to understand that right and re- and really appreciate black life and all of its complexity. To be honest, right, it's actually kind of insulting, right? It's, yeah, it's I insulting. mean, it is. <laughs> it really is if you think about it. <laughs> yeah, and and. and it's not. It's not that we're saying that we have privileged knowledge, right? We're not arguing that. Well, if you, you know, you if you knew what we knew, right, you'd have a different perspective right, right, on right. a lot of people. It's saying that we need to take the time to actually see what kinds of positions people are taking, what are their expressed commitments, what kinds of desires are they articulating at any given historical uh, moment, and that takes work, right? I think it's much easier to use race or even blackness as a proxy for what those interests may be, right? And uh, I mentioned, I alluded to Kianga Yamada Taylor's recent piece on on uh, reparations in Jacobin a few minutes ago, you know, before we started. And I think it's interesting that piece, she talks a lot about data that, that's actually true. I mean, she's, she's, she's right in reporting back to us the gulf in how people perceive the realities that we face. And so she, she reports back the ways that whites perceive inequality. And we, we already know this, right? You can go back, to, you know, look at tons of different public opinion polls which show clearly that whites don't necessarily see, you know, on average, don't necessarily see certain, histor- certain historical realities in the same ways that blacks do, mm-hmm. right? That there's always a sort of uh, gap in understanding. But the problem with that piece is that she moves from that reality to a cynical view about what's possible politically, right? It's just the sense that, well, Whites don't see inequality or they don't perceive blacks as being disadvantaged in a real way. And so therefore, it'll be impossible to build or unlikely, right? She doesn't say it's impossible, but less likely, right? More difficult to build a common cause and alliance across race lines. And I just don't really see the, the logic of that, right? I mean, 
you know, we think back to the Jim Crow period or even even uh, further back into the slavery era, right, the antebellum era, the people who, who signed into law the abolition of slavery, right, the people who amended the Constitution, these people were, were of all sorts of different minds, right? I mean, they, they did what they did because of historical pressure, because of influence of others around them. And I think we have to get back to that simple understanding of, of how politics works, right? It's not You don't have to be woke to do something that's right, right? You don't have to have a particular consciousness even to do something that's that's appropriate, right? I mean, we we wouldn't have the, you know, the major civil rights acts or the uh, the Voting Rights Act of 65 or the various, you know, components of the war on poverty if we were waiting for congresspersons and Southern constituencies to become conscious, right? I mean, that would have never happened. And, and it didn't happen, you know? So it's kind of an odd place we're in where I think we have the very notion of what political life is about totally fucking out of, out of whack, right? We don't really understand it. Or at least when it, when it ends up on these online echo chambers, right, these online discussions, the nuance of it at the local level, how we experience it in everyday life gets lost. So most people, if they're talking about, you know, a decision about, zoning variants for um, a new shopping center that's going up in their community. They can feel that and experience it in a certain way, right? It's local. They may know some of the players that are involved. They know some of the backstories. You still have to pay attention to what's going on. But that's a, we, we interpret that differently, right? You know, the concrete interests. We interpret it differently than these sort of hyperbolic exchanges around inequality that tend to take it out of out of context, right? There's no real players. There's no real discussion of where people stand. And we end up with some really silly notions about how to move forward. And I think it's, it's really unfortunate, right? And I actually don't think it's a problem so much of working class people. I really, I really do think this is an affliction of us as academics who want to be influential, who want to have some sort of impact on on the political world, but we're operating from some really odd notions of what politics is, right? And and we miss we miss the very basic part of it, which is interest, right? What what do people want? What kind of world do they want? That should be our focus. And we should spend some time trying to study that. Mm-hmm. Well said. I mean that's a really great foregrounding of getting into the the details of this debate as as it played out. And, you know, I think we do need to kind of do a a significant amount of throat clearing before we get started here so that, um, you know, some of the the common ways of receiving these arguments are kind of uh, swatted down from from the beginning, because otherwise, like you say, you don't you don't get a lot of open eyes and open ears, people who are ready and susceptible to these arguments, because it seems like I hate to say this, Cedric, it's, I, I, I feel like we're going to end up saying the same shit we said the first time around. You know what I mean? <laughs> Two years ago. But I mean, I'm serious. You know, I mean, you know, maybe, I should, maybe I should take this out, but I, I'll, I'll keep it in. I mean, at least for now. But, you know, it's like yeah. how many times do we have to say the same thing before we're heard saying the thing that we said instead yeah. of the thing that people say that we said? You know, right, right. Uh, how many different ways can I say the same thing until maybe at some point people will take it at face value instead of sort of twisting it in the most cynical way possible? So let's get through. I think there's there's a little bit of that going on in this debate, not to besmirch any of the players involved, because there's some people in here who have done some good work in other realms of you know their political and academic careers. But I think there's there's a really kind of a. Uh, there's a, a a dialogue of the of the deaf, if you will, to to use a cliched phrase. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's cliched and slightly ableist in today's register phrase. Um, right. Yeah, so 
let's break this down. The two players uh, involved in your response here in the most recent Jacobin piece, what black life actually looks like are, let's see, let's, let's first talk about Kim Moody. So Kim Moody uh, has a set of criticisms of your, not only the, the Panthers piece, but your more recent piece in, uh, in new politics. Talk to me about Kim Moody's objections. Cause I think his objections more, closely aligned with the kind of broad socialist left's perspective in this moment. And whereas white is kind of coming at it from a, maybe a more kind of like, uh, dare I say like woke liberal progressive academic perspective. Mm -hmm. So let's get at that kind of like broad socialist perspective presented by Moody's sort of new left centric understanding of black life and, and radical politics. Right. So I'll say this, um, I actually think the two converge, right? I mean, I say as much in, in my response to them. I think that they, you're right, they do they do emerge from different political positions, from different sets of concerns, but they converge around their view of what Black life is, right? And I think they also share a similar perspective as far as how we should think about class. I mean, both both of their, their pieces, if we look at uh, Maya White's, but, but even more surprisingly, Kim Moody's, don't really give us much in the way of can they talk about black life and class at the same time, right? I mean, for Moody, it's more the the sense that when you, you can talk about black elites, but not with any sense of sophistication, right? And and for me, when I talk about African-Americans in particular, middle class and, and elite folks, I don't see them as sellouts, right? Even when they take the wrong positions. I mean, we know historically that as a class, they're more complicated. Right. And all I'm asking, again, is that people spend time looking at what black elites are doing in particular context on this matter of the carceral buildup. You know, and I refer to uh, James Foreman's really good book, Locking Up Our Own. He's not treating them as sellouts in that book. He's actually showing us that there were different positions that particular players were taking during the 1970s. People like Douglas Moore, who's somebody who I actually interviewed as a graduate student for my dissertation. Uh, he was a classmate of Martin Luther King Jr. They both were in the seminary together. He was also a part of uh, the sit-in movement in, in North Carolina. This guy is a complex guy, right? He actually takes a bunch of different positions. I think he's wrong on a few things in the 1970s. And, and we need to look specifically at that, right? So I think part of the problem is the generalizations and the, the unwillingness to actually engage. Like I said, it's kind of insulting. Engaging the same style of analysis, you know, same type of analysis that you would for other people. If we're going to talk about class, if we're going to talk about race, let's actually do it carefully. So I, I, coming back to the broader point, though, about, you know, Moody's, Moody's uh, response, on the one hand, he's trying to push back against the argument I make that we shouldn't really adapt this new Jim Crow framework, but instead we should think about these problems in a more broad sense as the policing of, of a surplus population. So he offers, you know, a bit of a, uh, a critique of, of that position as I presented in those essays. And then maybe the other more important thing that he does is that he makes the claim that I'm really, um, you know, I'm, that I'm not clear. On one, one hand, he says I'm not clear about uh, what I want or what my political position is. But then on the flip side, he basically tells me uh, what that position is. And for him, it is a replay of, you know, Michael Harrington and Bayard Rustin's uh, realignment position. And I mean, that's just not the case, right? And I, I try in the, the, my response to 
to show uh, or remind people of my criticisms of Rustin. And also that that place he's referring to is really a short, in that Panthers essay, it's really a short reference to Rustin and not really a full, you know, full-bodied embrace of Rustin as a figure. I mean, I, I, to be honest, I don't do that with anybody, right? There's nobody whose politics I can think of that I fully embrace unless there's somebody who I'm connected to and in the same political formations with. We might come close to that, but uh, but otherwise it's not the case. But to me, like I said, both of their pieces converge and really defend this idea that, you know, Black people are, are exceptional, right? The class analysis doesn't always work when you're talking about African-Americans. So let's let's break that down a little bit, because I think that's one of the most kind of cutting, biting pieces here that you you say that, you know, well, Moody outright says he denies the fact that he's giving into black exceptionalism. But you you suggest that he is and, and Maya White is as well. And as well as it really gets to the heart of the way that, at least in your estimation, that most of these people are getting black politics, this race and class thing completely wrong is that they're giving into black exceptionalism. So let's cut through the jargon and the debates and give me your best kind of, uh, you know, elevator explanation, elevator speech on what is black exceptionalism? How does it show up and, and what's wrong with it? Yeah, I mean, so here's the thing. There's, there's no elevator speech, though, right? That's <laughs> that's the problem. I think, I think um, yeah, it's a tough thing to summarize. <laughs> it is, it's much it easier to summarize black people as, as having common cause and similar conditions. I mean, the, the, the most basic way to, to put it, right? And there's others who've been, I think, a bit more eloquent in this, to be honest. I mean, Reed in particular is, is, a, is an influence of my thinking on this, this matter. Um, it's the view that Black people constitute a unique constituency, right, with shared interests and with shared ways of knowing the world, and that those are dissimilar from the rest of the population. And so you can find some evidence of that, right? You can find, like I mentioned before, right, the, the data that Kianga cites um, about this, how people perceive different events. So Hur- Hurricane Katrina being one good example, right? You know, Black people immediately saw this as an injustice. Whites may have saw it as some sort of meteorological incident, you know, and didn't really see the structural dimensions and backstory to it. So we can find evidence of that, right? But for the most part, I mean, I just don't think that it's it's a helpful way of talking about Black politics, right? It, it's And, and we, we hear people all the time, right? They'll say, Essentially, uh, you know, they may preface what they're going to say is, well, I don't, you know, black people are not monolithic. And then they usually proceed to say something that's very monolithic about, you know, about black people. So, I mean, my sense of it, you, you can't sustain that view when you look closely at people in a real fight, which is what I always try to come back to. And I do a little bit of that in the, the essay, the last essay that was published. You know, we see it in, in Foreman's work on the, the carceral buildup, what that looked like on the ground in Washington, D.C. We see it in Preston Smith's book, Racial Democracy in the Black Metropolis. We see it in John Arena's work on New Orleans and the demolition of public housing. We can see the same things in other people's work. Fortner. Fortner writes about it in the context of New York. Oh, right, right. Right, the Rockefeller drug laws. So in all of those, in all those real contexts, right, you really can see, you know, different positions, Specific fights, rivalries, you know, you can't really abide this idea of Blacks as a singular constituency whenever you, you look closely at it, right? And I think those works, and there's others, right? There's others we could mention as well, really just make it difficult to do that, right? It, it actually makes it an intellectual to engage in this view of Black people as somehow dissimilar and not as affected or shaped by 
the very same economic and, you know, political dynamics as the rest of the American population. You know, I just I just got back from from Rochester, New York, which was my home for 10 years, right? I spent uh, the first 10 years out of grad school as a faculty member in Western New York. I lived in Rochester. I commuted out to the countryside to my school. And I think being in that environment, it was just a reminder being there this past weekend, being in that environment for 10 years where, you know, you can't really, you cannot in that sort of small or mid-city arena deal in high abstractions with people, right? You're not going to keep the audience for very long. And I remember one of the best fights we had, there are actually two that I'll mention here, some of the best fights we had in the last years that I was there on the ground. One was to fight for a lead paint abatement ordinance. I don't know if I mentioned this to you the last time we talked, but it was just such a great and dramatic uh, moment to watch how that unfolded. And, you know, the simple point of it is that on both sides, you saw Black people. Right. You saw black landlords who, along with the white landlords, fighting against it. You saw black people whose kids had been poisoned, who are now, you know, politicized and ready to stop this. The same was true a bit later when we had to fight against the uh, the dissolution of the the school board. Right. There was a, a proposal, a plan to dissolve the school board, the democratically elected school board in favor of a mayoral appointment model. Right. And this was all about trying to break the teachers union. And so on the one side, you've got black teachers, mostly in this district, some black parents, but not all. And on the other side, supporting the the move to get rid of the school board, you had, you know, college presidents, you had, you know, advocates of the creative economy who were trying to, you know, change the the, uh, growth trajectory of the city. You had, um, you know, all sorts of education reformers who were in favor of this, right? So you know, again, when we look at real fights, which I think is what the people we've just noted, these different historians and social scientists have done, you just can't stick with this notion of black exceptionalism, right? And there's a, there's a number of moments in in White's piece where she she almost tries to speak the voice of the black population. This is a really common rhetorical strategy, not only really, in the academic really. academic spheres, but especially in political spheres. Um, what I mean, right. I think Adolf Reed has been prolific and a lot of people who know his work well will know about his critique of kind of representational politics and the way that mm-hmm. uh, certain elite centers and uh, ruling class forces inside of racial communities have used that strategy to try to gain status and power and wealth and privilege inside of their communities, even in the Jim Crow era. Right. Right. I believe Michelle Boyd has written uh, a, a little bit about uh, Jim Crow nostalgia and the power of that uh, going into the 1980s and 90s um, and, and the kind of third right. way new Democrats, the kind of uh, racial power centers inside of the new Democrats that have that led that paved the way for neoliberalization. Right. Yeah. I mean, the one thing I'd say, and this is sort of building off of Adolf's uh, Jesse Jackson phenomenon book. You know, he concedes that you can have black constituencies. Right. You can have black representation, but let it be some authentic and discernible representation and constituency, right? If you are the president of the local NAACP chapter, you have a real constituency, probably constituted mostly of Black people, right? I mean, that's that's something we can talk about. But like you said, when you, when you make the, the conceptual leap or the rhetorical leap from that kind of grounded constituency, like I've been elected by uh, a congressional district where Blacks make up the majority, to the kind of voicing that we see in you know, not just Maya's piece, but in other other uh, circles. I mean, that's where the problem lies, right? Yeah. So I, I interrupted you to, to kind of jump in there because I, I, I like that. And I just wanted to emphasize 
Uh, it's one of those when you see this when you see this kind of um the the what do you call this the uh the racial we when you see the racial we uh you can't right. see it it's like the little sailboat and seeing eye pictures so <laughs> so i mean it is sometimes you wish you could unsee things so explain this to me T- talk to me how about uh, how in your estimation this manifests itself in my white's uh, uh response to your piece I mean, I think, you know, I don't want to I don't want to go too far with it because she does that in one place. You know, it, it is a form of I think it's, it's typically comes from a position of sincerity. Right. So feeling historically that that those voices have been denied a hearing. And now that I have the floor, I'm going to push back against, you know, the, the void. And so I get it. You know, I understand the motivation and, and, and why it might have been more important, you know, in the Jim Crow period when. You know, especially in the deep deep south, the vast majority of black people were disenfranchised. But doesn't make sense to do that now, right? In in a moment when it should be clear to anybody that black people have different minds, right, on 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 a number of different issues, as I just said. But where you already have, you know, people can speak their minds if they want. I mean, if anything, we have the opposite problem. We can constantly tell people what we think about everything uh, on social media and elsewhere. But without without much power, right? And so I think for me, I would actually be on board with that. If again, if it was grounded in real organizations, actual constituencies, where if you if you you're presenting yourself as the we, that there's a real we behind it, right? Not the kind of imaginary one that was you know conjured by black elites and others, you know, during the Jim Crow period. Yeah. So so let me ask you though, because it seems like what they're trying to do is they're trying to conjure that we. It's an act. It's almost like a right. performative act, kind of like trying to conjure that in the process of calling forth these constituencies. And this, th- these are some, maybe some of the most, I think, um, some of the strongest pushback that I got after our first chat, uh, uh, you know, mm-hmm. a year and a half ago at this point. Colin Kaepernick, for example, sort of, uh, you know, calling forth the legacy of sort of the black black power moment and how sure that moment is passed, but maybe he could call forward, you know, a, a similar moment. My concern about that is, and I'd like your reflection on this, my concern on that is that if you're calling forth a constituency that doesn't exist and it doesn't have any real purchase in the real world, you're actually undermining the long-term credibility and viability of your project in, in a sense, where it might, it might sort of take off for a minute, but at the, at the point where it doesn't sort of take hold in the material realities that most people live under, it'll just sort of dissipate and it'll be uh, discredited you know, thereby. Um, that, that's kind of my initial sort of, you know, sketchy thoughts as a, as a response to that. But it's, it seems like you've probably worked through this a lot more. What do you think? Well, yeah. I mean, a bigger problem is there's no accountability, right? I mean, so if you, if you're elected by people, either by, you know, the NAACP or, you know, some other local neighborhood organization and you're speaking on, on their behalf, that's one thing, but you also can be called into question when you don't represent the group effectively, right? Um, this is a different terrain, right? When we're talking about the, the, uh, the racial we in public, public discussion. I mean, there's an old joke and this, again, you know, we're channeling Adolf today. Um, there's a, the old quip and I think he gets this from, from Langston Hughes, right? You know, any, from the segregation period, any, um, you know, Negro with a, a new suit on and $5 in his pocket is a, is a black leader. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, and, um, you know, the, the the contemporary problem would be anybody with, you know, uh, a Wi-Fi signal and a cell phone can be a black leader, right? I mean, so it's sort of a, 
an amplification. You know, Langston Hughes saw the, the hollowness of that during his own period. He knew that it was limited as an idea. He saw through it. But it's even more complicated now when we've been set adrift. And, you know, a lot of these things we're talking about, right, they're not even unique to uh, the problem of black politics, right? They actually are, are connected more broadly to the hollowing out of public spaces through this process of neoliberalization, the destruction of those old bases of political life that used to exist in a lot of places, whether that's, you know, effective unions with union halls and other infrastructure or even public libraries and, you know, some sense of space where people might engage in other kinds of conversations. Uh, We've seen a lot of that stuff hollowed out, right? So I think Black political life has been set adrift, but it's a, it's a symptom of the broader problems in the society. And like I said, I think the, the advent of social media, you know, not to be, I mean, I know this is, this is circulated via social media. A lot of things I do same, so I'm not totally against it. But there are some, some aspects of it that make it more difficult for us to engage in the kind of critical work and the kind of, of uh, public spiritedness that we want to see, right? That, and by that, I mean... That when we have a conversation, it's possible for us to move from whatever our particular concerns may be towards a more common sense of what's possible and what we might work towards together, right? I mean, I think that's made much more difficult by the proliferation and availability of places to speak and event, but not necessarily to engage in public spiritedness. Yeah, yeah with any kind of uh, concern for public, for, for collective outcomes that follow. We go to these public speak book events. You know, I went to a book event. This past week, you know, there, there's speakers events all over campuses and in communities and bookstores and all that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, everybody mm-hmm. sort of just leaves. We all go home. Right. You know, and then maybe there was like a spirited question and answer period, but it didn't lead to anything. There weren't any collective decisions that were taken. There wasn't any action that was prescribed uh, by the collective right. you know, outcome of those discussions. And that's that's the world we live in now. And, and just to kind of circle back really quickly about some of the stuff we were talking about is that, you know, I, I was having some conversations with some friends and kind of looking in on some debates around, uh, you know, the question of leadership inside, say, the Palestinian community mm-hmm. in, in a town like uh, Toronto, for example. This was the context of the debate that I was looking in on. And some friends and former comrades of mine are dealing with this question of the class stratification inside of the Palestinian diaspora mm-hmm. and how that manifests itself and who gets to represent you know, that community and their political aspirations and the strategies that they take and the kind of stances that they want to stake out. And so, I mean, what's what's wild about this black exceptionalism is that it doesn't take you very long if you if you if you live in the real political world, you know, particularly around some of these sort of uh, struggles, you know, around various ethnic or national, di- uh, you know, transnational diasporas to see these kind of class stratifications playing out inside of these racial or ethnic communities. Mm-hmm. Um, so why is it that we miss it so profoundly when it comes to black life in America and the history thereof? And I think you get at something really crucial here. And you talk about some of the shortcomings of what we, we now call the old new left. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about the, what you lay out there in your, in your response with respect to Moody. It's funny. So like this past weekend, I actually, um, went back and read some um, some Marshall Berman while I was traveling. And um, there's a great piece that he wrote uh, for the Paris Review back around 1972, right? It's one that I would you know, encourage your readers to take a look at. And he's trying to come to terms with um, 
the problem of, of this kind of search for an authentic, you know, uh, authentic life, but more importantly, uh, some source of rebellion, right? And I don't completely agree. Like I said before, I don't completely agree with everything he's saying, but there's some good points in there about, you know, and, and, and he's really close to the subject as far as it's, he's still living through that period. He recalls a meeting that he and some other folks had, you know, and they were lectured by, you know, a snake activist on their need to organize whites. And it's a great piece, right? It's really short. He also takes a pretty extended foray into uh, Rousseau to try to flesh out some of these ideas. But the the short of it is the process, this is how I would explain it, the process of of suburbanization, the making of the middle class in the post-war years, really creates a conundrum for many whites, right, who are incorporated into that new emerging middle class of consumers, right? And Berman is not, he's, he's suspicious of, you know, the Herbert Marcuse's and others who, who see, you know, this is leading down a political dead end. You know, for Berman, it's always, there's always possibility, there's always, you know, a chance for, for, uh, for something different. And we have to kind of live with that chaos and fight through it. But it's interesting in recalling Marcuse, he actually, he actually sets up the same problem that I think uh, we're still stuck with, right? So many on the new left are searching for some way out of this moment, right, where there's increasing commitment to capital among the emerging consumer middle class. And for some of them, the, the civil rights movement serves as that inspiration, right, and as that means of egress by supporting the civil rights movement, by, you know, following Black activists or following Black movements, they see a means towards fulfillment. We see this in a bunch of different places, right? Marcuse made that argument in One Dimensional Man. There's a little bit of that as well in Norman Mailer's, you know, White Negro essay from the same period. Uh, we also see it again in a few different places where people feel that, you know, either we have to reach for uh, support the, the Black movement, right? Support the civil rights movement or even go beyond that, right? Towards third world struggles. Because this is where, you know, we can't expect, and we still hear this, we can't expect uh, white workers because they're bankrupt now, right? During that, that period of George Meany conservatism, they're bankrupt. They're committed to too many compromises with the system. And therefore we have to look elsewhere for those radical forces to emerge, right? Blacks, people in the third world, the Northern Vietnamese and now, what You might you. not say it, or maybe um, you will, but I'll go ahead and name it. That that's this is kind of like legacy of like Maoist substitutionism, right? Right. I mean, right. I don't know if well, that's your I analysis. Think, but I mean, not everybody not everybody fits as neatly into that box, right. though, right? I mean, there's there's yeah, other. True. So, like for instance, the group that I I uh, spoke to this past weekend when I was in Rochester, this group called Metro Justice, which is great, right? They're doing like a lot of progressive work on the ground there. Their origins is in the exact thing we're talking about, right? And I don't think they would, they wouldn't refer to themselves as you know as Maoist substitutionists back then, right? They they emerged from something slightly different. It was suburban constituencies who supported an organization called Fight, organized by Saul Alinsky to try to desegregate Kodak at that particular moment. A similar thing at the national level was uh, was IFCO, right, which was engaged in funneling money towards various uh, Black organizations and other causes. So I think we see it across the board. There's the there's the version you're talking about, right, which is very clear and very conscious. But there's also other moments where we see, you know, Black, you know, whites boarding buses and traveling to the Deep South to volunteer. And what's great about the piece by Berman, he actually says that's, that's progressive, right, for 
people to develop this broader sense of their their selves, right? To think that I should be concerned about the you know black person in Alabama who can't vote. I should be concerned about the you know the Vietnamese peasant, but ultimately, and I think this is where the the truth or the wisdom of of uh, Berman kind of shines. Ultimately, the, the the struggle to change the United States has to come back to how do whites coming out of that that post war consumer middle class deal with their own predicament, right? Deal with their own commitments to the society as it exists, and I think that's that's an unresolved problem in our society, right? Which is why you know you've got all these folks who are much more willing to engage in you know discussions of feelings and all sorts of you know whiteness. Uh, support groups and all of this other bullshit and not engage in the actual politics of how do you reverse and abolish the class relations that exist in the society at this particular moment. I mean, I think that's the that's the bigger thing. And that's why this stuff still has a, a cachet, right? Support. Support uh, New Jim Crow, whatever it is, right? All of those things are easier to throw money at or to, to, to talk about on social media than they are dealing with, you know, the class relations that exist and what happens within people's own communities. Right. That's that's spot on. Hey, I'm, I hate myself for saying what I'm about to say. So everybody just bear with me. All right. Well, <laughs> everybody cringe along with me uh, after I say this. But like this is very this is very mm-hmm. kind of Ted talky. You know what I mean? But you've all probably heard that story. And if you haven't, it's a good story. But you've heard that story where there's the man outside and he's looking under a spotlight and he's looking for something, looking for something. Some, some other guy walks up on him and says, oh, man, what are you looking for? And he goes, oh, I'm looking for my car keys. And he goes, oh, let me help you. So they're looking. They're looking under the spotlight. It's, it's pitch dark outside. So they're looking under the street light. I guess call it a spotlight, street light. And I'm, I'm mm-hmm. terrible at telling stories, Cedric. They're looking under a street light for his keys. And after about 10 minutes, they can't find his keys. And he's like, man, I don't think your keys are over here. Uh, you know, are you sure you dropped them over here? And the guy said, no, what? I dropped them over there in the dark. I'm just looking over here because this is where the light is. And yeah, we can all cringe together. I'm cringing right now and I'm terrible at telling stories, but you get the point is that it's easier to look where the light is, even if your damn car keys aren't under this, under the street light because they're in the dark. That's hard. So it's easy to kind of go for the kind of, you know, the unpacking, the knapsack and the privilege and the, the, you know, the, that, that kind of stuff. Cause you have a, a perceptive audience. I think likewise too, we can turn this in a, in a, in, a, in a way that's probably relevant to all my listeners, like all these feuds that happen on social media, like it's easy to go at one another because we care about what we think about one another because we all considered ourselves, consi- uh, you know, principled, serious socialists together. You know, I mean, as the mm-hmm. joke always goes, like, I don't know, try to shit post Richard Spencer. He doesn't care. <laughs> he yeah. doesn't care, yeah. you know. You're not going to be heard. And so there's a way in which the left, and you're right, this is just another manifestation. I'll shut up now. But like, it's another manifestation of doing what's easy because it's, because it's, yeah, because it's easy. Let's move on and finish up this debate a little bit. There's a really interesting. Let me add one more point to that, though. I think it's easy. It's easy in some ways. It's also, um, I mean, to, to get back into some class analysis, right? There's also something to be maintained by you know, the current, the current situation, which people don't want to upset, right? I mean, so, so it's easier to deal with poverty somewhere else or oppression somewhere else than it is to address the relative advantages that one has in their own midst, right? And I think that's where, you know, to, to sort of circle back, I think that's where some of the white privilege rhetoric emerges, right, within the new left, 
trying to reconcile and deal with that particular problem. But I also think that it's it's uh, it's imprecise, right? Because it doesn't really take into account that there are other peoples who have equally strong commitments to American consumer society as it exists as the the whites who we're talking about, right? So again, it's the, the, the problem where the language really fails to really keep up with the, the reality, right? And, the, and the, the kind of analysis that we need. Um, because if we, if we would have a conversation with Blacks who live in relative middle-class settings, they would say a lot of the same stuff, right? We can't call it white privilege, but they would say a lot of the same things about people who are unemployed. They would probably say a lot of the same things about people who use drugs, right? Not their people, but other folks. And so, you know, I just think that is it's um, as a as a set of ideas, right? To focus on whiteness and white privilege, it's it's powerful. It's easy to use, but it doesn't quite get precise yet what's happening. You know, what's happening and 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 how widespread this is, how widespread the commitments are in the society. And again, it's tough to reverse, right? It's tough to kind of turn around to somebody who has a house and a and a um, you know, a car and a decent retirement setup and say that, you know, this needs to go, right? You need to be taxed more and we need to redistribute wealth, right? That's a tougher politics to engage in than catering to the poor or volunteering in a disaster zone or, again, you know, sending money to support, you know, building a well or whatever it may be in some other place. Yeah, so, that's exactly right. Yeah. I think, you know, I live, maybe it's my proximity to Washington, D.C. that makes this so abundantly obvious. But, you know, Trump's, um, you know, immigration bans uh, and, and also to his his wall rhetoric, you know, on the southern border of the United States with Mexico is just so disgusting. It's xenophobic. It's racist. It's, it's abysmal. You know, all right. Now we've got all that throat clearing out of the way. Uh, but there's a way in which we, we also we now sort of um, conceptualize immigrants as like pure victims in a similar way that we're talking about black exceptionalism. But I'll tell you what, you live around the greater Washington, D.C. area, you see the global ruling class. You see the ruling class mm-hmm. from the global south. And they hate immigration more than the average, you know, make America greater hat wearing dude hates oh, immigration. Because yeah. they did it the right way. And these other people are breaking the law and making them look bad. And so there's this backlash that you get that's from the class striations, right, inside of ethnic and racial groups that that all of this kind of like pure victimization and, and racial and ethnic exceptionalism really misses. And it doesn't give us the tools to overcome it, right, and to fight the systems that produce that relative advantage and that class privilege inside of these groups. Um, so anyway, I, I'm, I'm explaining this. You should be explaining it. You, you do a better job. But uh, <laughs> it's uh, no, no, this is a conversation. Yeah, yeah. No? Let's uh, let's let's move on to your political conclusions here, because this is where I think the greatest misunderstanding occurs between you and your interlocutors here. Um, Moody has not been kind to the what I broadly call the Sanders wave. He has written in many places, Jacobin especially. Um, he sort of sees this latest manifestation, this latest wave of this kind of so left class struggle, social democratic uprising in the United States is just a kind of um, just another, you know, another instantiation of that realignment strategy that failed. And so this one's destined to fail in exactly the same way. So he kind of categorizes you in that way. Uh, he, you've got the mic. Here's your opportunity to kind of set people straight. What is your what is your political vision and, and, and why do you think that combating this black exceptionalism is so key to that vision? Well, I mean, I think, um, you know, in the first part of what you said, um, 
regarding Sanders. I mean, you know, I think Sanders, you know, uh, as a phenomenon, right? I mean, we can't we can't completely downplay, you know, how significant that was, right? To have somebody run as a, a democratic socialist and to to have some viability, right? I mean, we can think back to like the the Jesse Jackson campaigns, you know, different context of the, the middle to late '80s. But this was significant, right? And and I think it it marked, you know, what was more fascinating about it was not so much Sanders, right, as a figure, but the way that that he opened up space or his campaign opened up space for different kinds of of uh, visions of what was possible within the U.S. context, right? And I, and I don't think it's just Sanders. I mean, I think he's his campaign emerges, you know, on the, the tide of all sorts of other things that have happened, you know, over the last couple of decades, whether that's anti-globalization struggles to close out the last century or, you know, the, the way the country was politicized after the Katrina crisis uh, and the foreclosure crisis that ensued shortly thereafter. And even the, you know, the, the kind of politics that occupy and, and Black Lives Matter uh, reflected and and maybe advanced in some ways. So I think, I think we've seen you know over the course of the last two decades, you know, really opening up of different political possibilities, different kinds of of thinking about the world that we want. Really pitch battles on the ground, you know, in cities like Chicago with the CTU strike and other other developments. So I think Sanders was just a a, a manifestation of that. I also, I mean, I, I'm not so sure. It's not clear to me what Moody would, would want to see as an alternative, right? I mean, other than some sort of socialist party or third party alternative, which I'm, yeah. I'm with him in spirit, but yeah. I, I don't think that's going to happen soon, right? I mean, we are, we're stuck with this system, which is, you know, as I've said to people, you know, uh, recently in different conversations has always been undemocratic, right? It's always been un- un- nominally democratic. You know, it was built that way. And so um, I think we can try to wrest as much as we can from what exists while we try to build other alternatives. If you live in a place like Rochester that I just returned from, there's no prospect of building some sort of alternative party in that context, right? I mean, not now. And so you have to deal with the, the candidates you have. Now, when I was there, I met all sorts of progressive leaning Democrats at the local level, right? You know, people who are running for you know, judgeships in in that particular jurisdiction. Those are the choices you make as a citizen. You know, you 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 look at the lay of the land, you spend time engaging, you know, candidates, and you you make the best decisions you can make in, in those contexts, and you push for the things that you want. I mean, I I don't really believe in this sort of uh, you know, Deus ex machina version of of left politics, right? Where someday you know, either the party will come together or some popular struggle will just magically appear or there'll be a crisis that will lead to, you know, the kind of society we want. I think we have to work for it. We have to build it brick by fucking brick, man. There's no other way to get to it, right, at this point. If if things accelerate or if, you know, uh, other historical conditions change and make different different kinds of realities possible, then sure. But until that point comes, we have to spend time dealing with what, you know, to use the old expression, we got to dance with them what brought us, right? We got to deal with the, the context that we have and the conditions that we have. And, and, and again, you know, this, this might sort of be another rejoinder to the problem of third worldism. 
we can't be deceived by what's happened in other places, right? I mean, I get frustrated whenever people come around talking about Fanon, right? I mean, I love Fanon, but he, he never lived in the United States. As far as I'm concerned, when he arrived, as far as I know, you know, and he arrived at the, the uh, hospital in, in uh, Bethesda, he was dying, right, at that point. And so he didn't live on American soil. He didn't live within this context. So why do we think his ideas are so important and powerful for understanding our times, our historical conditions, and the fights that we need to be fighting, right? So I just think that, you know, this is just a broader problem of, you know, the left coming out of the Vietnam moment and Black power and some of these other, these other developments, right? That we, you know, we've, we've turned elsewhere instead of spending time trying to understand our own, our own context. Well said, well said. I hate that we have to come on here and say basically the same thing we said the first time around, but I hope, but, you know, we'll just keep on saying it. And I think all the greats, you know, present and myself excluded, I'll call you one of the greats, but I think, you know, if, if you're going to learn anything from the greats, they'll tell you that's kind of what you do throughout your career. You just get up there and you say the same thing in different ways. And then hopefully one of those little nuances, one of the, you know, little uh you know anecdotes you throw in will we'll catch somebody the right way <laughs> and that's all we can do but moreover this isn't just you know the heart of it i think at the end of the day this kind of universalist class struggle oriented politics you know that that doesn't that doesn't shirk the responsibility and the legacies of 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 what you rightly point to being these kind of racial disparities but champions politics that can use cross-racial, cross-ethnic, broad class-oriented struggles to actually win a, a different kind of society. That's how we change people's minds at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I think uh, there were a lot of lessons that I didn't learn the first time I heard them, right? I had to hear it multiple times in different versions before I finally uh, took it to heart. So, you know, I think we, uh, we got to stay at it. Right on, right on. So we'll take it to the B side. We're going to answer some patron questions. Now we're going to talk a little bit about the movement for reparations that has shown its head, not only in the kind of liberal and progressive sphere in the context of the 2020 democratic party primary, but also, uh, just this week, uh, as you mentioned earlier, Cedric Keanu Yamada Taylor has written a piece for Jacobin, defending uh, reparations as a, as a socialist and political tactic. So we'll move on over to the B side, talking to the patrons and addressing some of the questions there. Um, if you're not a patron of DPS, you're going to miss out on that. So catch all of our B sides going forward in season three by heading over to patreon.com slash dead pundits, become a member of DPS, support the new left agenda, get access to B sides and other subscriber only material and help support some of the videos we're putting out on YouTube starting next week. Uh, the first video is called Introduction to Democratic Socialism. And we're going to be facing down that right-wing libertarian, uh, you know, alt-right juggernaut that uh, that those folks have built on YouTube to try to inject some socialist politics over there. And I think it's a worthwhile cause. So support this project. And thanks again, Cedric, for coming on DPS. Sure.